Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll talk with Dr. Michael Osterholm of the University of Minnesota, who, along with some colleagues on President Biden's COVID-19 advisory board during the transition, recently wrote an op-ed in the New York Times titled, We Advised Biden on the Pandemic, much work remains to uh, face the next crisis. So we'll get a, a COVID status report from Dr. Osterholm on today's program, and we'll dig into what he and his colleagues believe should be done to better prepare for the next pandemic. And then Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I will review the latest news from Washington as we approach the lame duck session of Congress. So first, let's get our COVID update from Dr. Osterholm. He's an internationally recognized expert in infectious disease. He's been on the program before to share his, uh, his insights. And also joining in the conversation today is Concord Coalition Communications Director Arf Harris, whose past experience includes overseeing communications and government relations for the Connecticut Department of Public Health during the first years of the pandemic. Dr. Osterholm, welcome back to Facing the Future. It's really great to have your perspective once again. Well, thank you, Bob. It's good to be back with you. As we're heading into the holiday season, there's going to be people crowding into airports and attending family gatherings and parties. So I thought it'd be a good idea to check in with you on where we are with the pandemic and where we're going. And then we can take a bigger picture look at what you and your colleagues recommended in the New York Times opinion piece. So, as a status check, it seems to me that the crucial data, such as hospitalizations and deaths, have been relatively stable and that there's not at the moment a discernible spike in new cases. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think it is, at least here in the United States. Uh, and uh, the point, though, to make is, is that each and every week seems to bring us new surprises with regard to the variants of the virus, and we don't know what those are going to mean. And so, uh, you know, anyone who predicts out right now more than a few weeks in advance as to what's happening with COVID, I think, uh, is on very shaky ground. Having said that, let me say that the country right now in many locations is experiencing a challenge unlike anything they had during COVID in terms of hospitalization needs and uh, critical care availability. And that's largely because of the combination of respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, and influenza. And we have institutions all around the country right now that literally are taking care of people uh, with serious illnesses in hallways because that's all they have. Uh, staffing is very, very short. So it just reminds us of how fragile our quote unquote disease care, healthcare system is in this country and uh, how all it takes is one of these infections to tip the balance. And we're now looking at potentially three of them occurring uh, roughly around the same time throughout the country. Is it true that most of the country has either gotten COVID uh, or has gotten vaccines or uh, boosters so that 
most Americans have a fairly decent immunity uh, to this family of viruses? Well, I wish that were the case. Unfortunately, it's not. And I say that because of two things. One is, if you actually look at the level of vaccination in this country, uh, it is a challenge. We rank 71st in the world in terms of countries for level of vaccination. Uh, a good example is the fact that we strongly urge people to get this new bivalent BA4, BA5 vaccine, uh, particularly if you're 12 years of age and older, you're eligible for it because we do have evidence that it is doing a better job than with previous vaccines. And yet only about 12% of the eligible people in this country have gotten that vaccine. So we still are hurting in terms of getting people up to as much speed as we can. We also recognize with these vaccines that as good as they are in potentially preventing serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths, they still allow for individuals to become infected and potentially transmit the virus. And so we're trying to learn how to live with all that right now of the combination of what I would call vaccine acceptance and vaccine effectiveness. And then finally, last but not least, one of the things we're learning about these vaccines is that they wane over time, the protection wanes. And when you add that together with these new subvariants that actually can evade immune protection, that's a toxic combination. And so we don't really know more than a few months out, four to six months out, just what level of protection will be there from whether you had previous vaccination histories or you actually also had previously been infected. There's still a lot that we don't understand about this infection and how to prevent it. And we do know that there are a number of people today who have previously been infected or who have previously been vaccinated who are becoming ill. It really boggles my mind, as I'm sure it does yours, that we have effective vaccines out there that people don't, and boosters and things that people don't take advantage of. You know, Bob, it's interesting. We've actually seen a very unfortunate and surely unnecessary change in the number of people dying in this country by their risk category. Early on uh, in the pandemic, the predominance in deaths were largely among the communities of color people who were in essential working jobs where they went to work every day in grocery stores, frontline locations, because they had to. And then they would come home often to a multi-generational apartment or home where they then transmitted the virus. And we saw this to be the huge challenge. Well, now along comes vaccine, except vaccine acceptance is actually really varied tremendously, not just by geographic area, but by who lives in those areas. And today, the number one uh, reason for dying with COVID is number one, not being vaccinated. And largely it is white populations in middle-class or more affluent locations that just refuse to get the vaccine. As it's been labeled by some, it's kind of the uh, middle-class Republican population that's uh, now dying. And this is so unfortunate. If we could just convince these people to get vaccinated, as I said earlier, it may not keep them from becoming infected, but it surely can do a lot to keep them from becoming seriously ill, hospitalized, and dying. I want to uh, bring Av in to, to talk a bit about the op-ed piece that you you had. I just want to end the the update portion with this because it you know pr President Biden raised eyebrows, certainly raised my eyebrows. Uh, back in September, when he more or less said that the pandemic was over. And there was a lot of debate about what, what he meant by that. Um, apparently, what he meant was the acute stage was over and we were going into an endemic phase 
Is that, I mean, would you say that that's kind of what we're doing is trying to go from the acute phase into an endemic phase and, and trying to figure out how to live with that? Well, I surely understand what the president was saying in the sense that the vast majority of the U.S. population has moved on. They're done with the pandemic, even if the pandemic virus isn't done with them. And that's clear and compelling, uh, you know, out there every day, just go into public places, go on airplanes, uh, you know, go on public transportation in general. And you'll see most people are taking no effort at all to mask or to in any way uh, reduce their risk of transmission. So I think that was an accurate statement. The problem is, as you just alluded to, is, is that are we really in an endemic period, whatever that means? And I've come to believe we won't know we're out of the pandemic till a year after we're out of it and nothing else has happened since then. I'm afraid that that's not an acceptable answer for many, but that's the case. As I have pointed out before, uh, you know, looking at the advent of the variants that showed up in the end of 2020 and early 2021, and I said at that time, even though vaccine was slowing, that the darkest days of the pandemic were still ahead of us. And then along came Delta, along came Omicron. And now with Omicron, we've seen this long high plains plateau of, as you pointed out, 325, 350 cases a day dying, leading us to over 2,400, 500 deaths a week. Uh, you know, if that had occurred in the early part of the pandemic, it would have been, oh my God, the house is on fire. Now, today, we've come just to accept that that's just standard. That's the norm. You know, we don't seem to be concerned about that. And so in that part, the pandemic's not done yet. And we really have so much we can do in terms of vaccine. Uh, we also have the antivirals, which have now been demonstrated, uh, Paxlovid particularly, to not only reduce the seriousness of illness and the likelihood of dying, but it's actually now been shown to reduce the likelihood of developing long COVID. And to me, those are really, really important new data. But yet, if the public won't take it, if they won't accept it, you know, then we'll continue to see this an unacceptable high level of serious illness and deaths occurring in this country, even if they're not the big spikes of cases that we saw earlier in the pandemic. Bob, let me turn the microphone over to you. Thanks, Bob. And uh, Dr. Osterholm, I, in reading the op-ed that you and some of your other uh, colleagues put together, um, I, I was really struck by uh, right up top where you say, and I want to quote it here, uh, we are nearly three years into the COVID-19 pandemic, a health crisis so long, disruptive, and deadly, it should have transformed the country's preparation for the next public health emergency. Sadly, it has not. So that's a pretty stark statement uh, right at the beginning of that. I'm wondering if you can expand on that. How should we have transformed and where have we fallen short? Well, you know, I think we still really don't fully appreciate the impact that this pandemic has had on the world, not just our country. You know, we've lost over a million people to COVID. The impact financially has been dramatic. I find it somewhat challenging, honestly, as to how myopic so many of us are about what the pandemic's done in the sense that we're all concentrating on the economic impact right now in the United States of inflation. Shirley's been front and center in all the political uh, discussions of the recent weeks. And yet, if you look, this was pandemic-induced largely. Ukraine played some small role. And there are countries around the world right now, Argentina, 70% inflation rate. Look what's happening in the EU. Look what's happening in Asia. And the fact that people don't realize that this was largely due to the pandemic. 
interruption of supply chains, uh, all the essential work issues out there. And so to me, it's very hard not to understand of how you would say, well, I don't want this to happen again. I'm gonna invest in whatever it takes to limit the likelihood that this will happen again. The costs have been a tremendous. You know, the Inter International Monetary Fund is estimated just in direct costs, it's over $12.5 trillion that the pandemic has cost. Well, that's a lot of money if you want to invest in trying to, to reduce the likelihood of that happening again. And what we did in our piece in the New York Times uh, which was a group of us who were previously on the Biden-Harris transition team advisory board on COVID, said, look it, there's so much we could do. Building ventilation, for example, and what we could do to reduce the risk of transmission in public places by just improving building ventilation. What we could do if we had better kinds of masking, ones much more comfortable, ones where people can feel the confidence if they wore them that they could really do a lot to reduce the risk of transmission. Of the healthcare system, I just got done noting the fact that we are in worse shape in many hospitals around the country today in terms of a lack of beds and, and adequate healthcare workers for kids in particular who are critically ill with both RSV and influenza. Um, did we really do anything to fix our healthcare system? No, we didn't. And so I think it's much as we want to move on, and I understand why we all want to. We want this to be behind us, you know, have our great-grandchildren read about it in a history book someday, but let's just get done with it, okay? But it's not that simple. If we don't learn from these lessons from this pandemic, we are going to repeat them again. And so our effort really was to lay out, not in an accusatory way, not to put a finger towards one group or another to say, come on guys, we should learn from this and to say, what could we do to invest so that today we'll spend pennies to save dollars and lives later? And we just don't see that discussion taking place anywhere. Yeah, so, so you bring up a few things and I wanna focus a little bit on testing and data collection in our data infrastructure because you spend some time talking about that. And mm -hmm. we've seen some dramatic improvements in the ability to test yourself at home, the rapid at-home testing. Um, well, you make a point that the rapid at-home testing to detect multiple infectious viruses, like you just mentioned, influenza, RSV, um, you know, COVID, whatever the infectious virus might be, that we still don't have the ability to test, uh, or maybe we have the ability, but we haven't built out the infrastructure so we can actually do these rapid at-home tests to detect multiple viruses because then you could think about ways in which uh -huh. you could prevent people from getting sick um, from multiple infectious agents. And I think to the flu season, um, I think it was either last year or the year before, where it was a pretty mild flu season. And probably the reason was a lot of us were, you know, social distancing. A lot of us were wearing masks. Um, and so that prevented, you know, spread of not just COVID, but, but, but other infectious disease. So yeah. what would we need to do? Um, to really have a robust uh, ability for people to test for these multiple infectious yeah. viruses, you know, and, and get results quickly? Well, let me start out by saying that none of this is going to be easy. And the reason it's not easy is because there are still unanswered questions about what can we do and how effective will it be? For example, testing. You know, the lateral flow tests, the ones that we use at home largely, are good, but they're not great. Uh, you know, they miss a lot of infections and occasionally will tell somebody they're infected when they're not. But then on top of it, we have no way to collect that information. 
There is nothing that means that a health department will understand, oh, by the way, we have three times as many cases out there as we suspected because the two thirds of people are getting tested, the results never get reported to anyone. And so we have to really look carefully at how do we do that access to testing? What kind of testing do we do? And how do we use the information that comes from that testing to help inform us of what's going on? So largely today, we're stuck with looking at hospitalizations and deaths, even though they're lagging indicators, uh, to find out what's going on, because I just don't trust the testing data and the number of reported cases. So that's the first challenge. But you're right, we could use new and improved tests where at-home testing could be very important in helping us understand what's going on if, in fact, we could get highly sensitive and specific tests and they could be reported somewhere, even on, on an anonymous basis, just basic demographic data. So I think that's really important. I think the other thing is, is that we need to do so much more in the way of respiratory protection. We could do more. The N95s that we use today are largely that are of a residual of a professional occupational kind of protection, not necessarily built for full comfort, et cetera. And, uh, you know, we have had a disastrous public health rollout around the world, not just this country, where the WHO and CDC got it so wrong for so long as to how this virus is transmitted. They kept talking about respiratory droplets, these things that fall within six feet, where today even they acknowledge it is aerosols. It's these very fine particles, much like perfume or the smoke from a cigarette. Both are aerosols where you can smell them at some distance. So we need to have respiratory protection for that. And then we need to educate people how to use that respiratory protection and understand that they can do a lot to protect themselves. So there are really a lot of things that we can do if we just put our minds to it and better understand what we need to do to educate the public. The one thing I will repeat over and over again is none of this makes any difference if people won't use it or they won't take a vaccine. And so we have a lot of work to do to help people understand why is this in your best interest? This is not just some mandate that will in fact, you know, require you to accept someone else's beliefs. No, this is about how do you throw a lifeline to each other protect themselves. And I think that's the challenge we have right now. One point that uh, you made uh, in, in the opinion piece also, which, which I think doesn't get a lot of attention, but I think is important. And I learned about this, obviously, you know, <laughs> working in public health was wastewater monitoring yeah. that um, you can actually, and, and, and our, our state epidemiologists work very closely with the Yale School of Public Health, and they really kind of did this in a, on a pilot basis in a couple of cities in Connecticut when I was at the Department of Public Health. And you could actually detect, uh, you know, more activity in wastewater that would be an indicator of that we've got another wave coming. Yeah. So what kind of investment do you think we need to do in that? And because you, you, you saw it happen in some municipalities, but not in others. We, yeah. we sort of had a patchwork thing going. What would you like to see in terms of wastewater monitoring? And, you know, how helpful could that be in understanding you know, what is going on with, with uh, transmissible viruses? Well, it turns out that just as you just described, wastewater monitoring has really moved forward through the COVID pandemic as a reliable and very important source of information about our communities. And that we excrete parts of this virus in our stool, just as we do for other viral infections. 
and that we can actually monitor that. In fact, we're doing that for monkeypox right now as well as polio. And this is a powerful tool that is, I think, something you're going to, it'll become commonplace in public health surveillance in the months and years ahead. And I'm excited about that. I think it's very, very important. Not only can we monitor just the load that's coming into our sewers, we can also monitor the subvariants. We can actually tell you, ah, look at this new one's emerging. This has real implications. The other thing that we can do with this is uh, use it basically for other viral infections that are just showing up for the first time. And we're trying to understand what's going on out there. We can quickly add this cassette of information into that test and look for it in the wastewater. That to me is an incredibly powerful tool. So, so I'm, I'm excited by the opportunities here and you know, what are the many, many different opportunities in general for infectious diseases with wastewater sampling, et cetera. And uh, it, it is one of the few, if I could say, bright lights that came out of the pandemic was this issue with wastewater sampling. We're gonna take our uh, break here. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, Harris and I are talking with Dr. Michael Osterholm of the University of Minnesota, an internationally recognized expert in infectious disease epidemiology. We're discussing the latest trends in COVID and what we need to do to prepare for the next pandemic. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Av Harris and I are talking with Dr. Michael Osterholm of the University of Minnesota, one of the nation's leading COVID experts. And we're discussing current COVID trends and how we should prepare for the next pandemic. You know, uh, one of the things that I was really surprised about in, in reading your op-ed in the New York Times about things that we need to do to prepare is the extent to which we rely on evidence of infectious disease data from other countries. For example, Israel, Britain, South Africa all seem to be ahead of us in terms of collecting data and analyzing it. And I'm, I'm glad for their data. <laughs> I'm glad for their work. But it does seem to me that uh, we ought to be able to be a leading nation for that uh, in and of ourselves. Well, you know, Bob, one of the challenges we have in this country and something we've all recognized for many, many years, and while we've made some inroads, there's still a long way to go. And that is we have a largely uh, dysfunctional disease care system or healthcare system, if you call it, want to call it that, in terms of comprehensive information uh, collection and sharing. Uh, today in this country, we have state health departments and a number of local health departments, which are the node upon which we collect population-based data. So we want to find out what's going on in state A and how many cases they have or how they occur, when they occur, why they occur. We go to that state. Well, but never forget in the first instance, much of this information comes from the clinical community. And we have such poor connections for information sharing between them. There are a number of health departments in this country that still get case reports on fax machines. Can you believe that? I mean, at this time in all of internet-based activities and technology, and it's because we haven't invested any resources into that. And so one of the challenges we've had is, is that we can't collect data like they can in the UK or in Israel, where they can quickly do population-based studies because with single payer, they actually have all the opportunity to analyze instantaneously 
the true comprehensive health status of everyone in that country. And that's just exactly what they did in those countries to give us the kind of instant data that we need and want to determine how do we use vaccines? What does it mean to have vaccine protection? What's happening with drugs? How well do they work? What do they mean? And where it takes us forever to get that here in the United States. And so much of it is jumbled up in misinformation because it's not well collected and brought forward. So I think this should be an indication of itself how important it is to reform the disease care or healthcare system to be able to provide that kind of information. You know, it's still as we understand proprietary information, confidentiality, all there, that can happen and we can still use the information that will give us the opportunity in the United States to know this week, if I wanna know what is the vaccine effectiveness in X number of populations. We should be able to do that with a touch of a few buttons. Right now, it's meetings, it's, it's sharing you know, large files, getting somebody to analyze them, et cetera. Not productive. And that's got to change. Av. So on that note about uh, data collection, one quick antidote was, so I spent a couple of weeks uh, overseas earlier this year in Israel where they had a very robust uh, testing system. And you got a PCR test, uh, not a rapid test, but a PCR test when you got there and you had to wait until you got the results until you were allowed to kind of yeah. you know, mingle with society. But PCR test results came back within four to five hours. They didn't come back within a few days. Um, and, and that I was thinking about because it was a lot less disruptive on things like work life, school life, things like that. Um, whereas here, you know, if you, you were potentially a suspect case, you had to wait till your PCR test results got back in the beginning of the pandemic. That was like over a week, but it got better over time. It, it, but it's still, you know, it could be it could be a day or two still. Um, yeah, yeah. And 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 so I'm I'm wondering what can we do about that because that also relates to data collection and you know how quickly we can turn these things around. Well, again, when the whole pandemic emerged, there was obviously a challenge getting testing up and going in this country. And when we say getting testing, there wasn't necessarily even specific to which kind of testing. Was it the PCR? Was it uh, the lateral flow tests I just mentioned, et cetera? We never really had a national strategy for what we're going to do to test people. What would we do with the data? How would it be used? How timely was it uh, re would require it to be in order to be effective. And so I think what you're illustrating here is just that, that there are those rapid PCR tests, which are quite highly uh, effective, that could have gotten information much sooner, that could have then tied people uh, back to that information for them to take their own action on so that they didn't transmit to others. And I, I think, again, it's all about what I consider creative imagination. Imagine what a new system would look like if it did just what you just talked about. And it could. Uh, it's just we haven't done that. And now that the federal government is pulling out of supporting for testing, uh, you know, vaccines, drugs, uh, providing respiratory protection, et cetera, I only see more backsliding that way in terms of helping us prepare for the next one. So, so your point's a really important one. Uh, and it's one that we're still not doing real well with. So one thing I wanted to ask in a big picture way, uh, because it actually did become quite a political issue. And it just just in, in the midterm elections we just had, a lot of people were still talking about it. The decisions we made about schooling, 
and closing schools in this country that, you know, the impact that that had uh, remote learning, you know, the, the data that's been uh, pointed out where we may have lost up to two decades of gains uh, and academic gains in, in English writing, reading, you know, science and math just in the last couple of years. I know I had a couple of high school students who were, you know, all of a sudden had to do uh, remote work and, and, and I'm sorry, remote schooling in my house. And it was really, really difficult <laughs> on them. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of kids lost uh, a good amount of schooling. But looking where we are now and looking back on it, you know, how do you think we handle the whole question of how to keep, should we keep schools open or closed? And could we have done anything differently there yeah. or better in, in your opinion? Because this does have an impact like for the next pandemic. We're going to yeah. have to think about that. Well, take a step back and ask yourself, why were we closing things down? What was the purpose? What was lockdowns all about? I wrote an op-ed piece in the Washington Post in April of 2020, in which I urged that national lockdowns not be put into place, saying that what we were really trying to do was flatten the curve, meaning keeping people from getting infected until we could get them to vaccine. And so that was number one. Number two is, if I have 2,000 cases of infection in my community, and they all occur in 10 days, trying to take care of that group is going to be really difficult. If I have those same you know, number of infections, but over four months, it makes it a much easier uh, situation with regard to the healthcare system. And so in a sense, trying to limit contact at certain times is really about trying to flatten the curve. But we lost sight of all that. It was almost as if lockdowns became the default position. And with that, I think we burnt a lot of goodwill and capital with the public. You know, right here in Minnesota, I can tell you in rural Minnesota, we hadn't seen cases initially. Uh, and mom and pop's hardware store was shut down for weeks and weeks and weeks in counties where they just hadn't seen cases. Meanwhile, in the regional city, you know, 60 miles away, the big box hardware stores and everything else could stay open because they were considered essential. It made no sense. And the public reacted accordingly. So I think that one of the things we have to do is define what are we trying to do? The second thing was schools. The virus ended up acting very differently in kids over time. If you look at the earliest cases, there was not much evidence for severe illness in students. But as time went on, more and more got infected with each new variant such that Omicron basically overran schools. But we went from closing them down early to then reacting and saying, we're never gonna do that again, to now Omicron coming where we couldn't field school teachers, uh, support staff, they were all sick. And we had janitors literally where schools were open who were well to go to work overseeing you know, study halls because they didn't have anybody else. Now that's when you could argue the school could have closed down because the efficient education wasn't happening anyway. And yet at that point, if you said, oh, well that would, we're gonna keep our schools open at any cost, that was not based on the circumstances of the moment. So I think you raise a very important point. We need to be much clearer in why we do what we do. We need more evidence that it makes a difference or it doesn't. Just explaining to people trying to flatten the curve is different than trying to say, oh boy, this is not gonna happen if you do X or Y. No, the pandemic's gonna continue to unfold, but this is what we can do to address it. So, so I, I very much appreciate your point. I think education, is a, a real uh, central focus here of this very discussion. And this is again, what should be happening right now. We should be doing hot washes on this pandemic to understand what did we learn? What can be applied to the next pandemic? 
That's uh, we're we're reaching the end of our time with you this afternoon, but I just wanted to end on on this note for those that are wondering why the heck the Concord Coalition is talking about <laughs> the pandemic. I always like to remind people that the uh, the health uh, of the uh, of the population, things like pandemics, and as we were talking about before, the healthcare infrastructure is crucial to the long term growth of the economy, and so. Uh, you know, we've seen how not being prepared has had a huge effect on the budget, negative effect on the budget and the economy. So next time around, it might be better to do some investing in the kind of things that we're talking about. And yeah, it's probably going to cost some money, <laughs> but, you know, maybe we can figure out a way to pay for it uh, because it's really, really, really important. And we very much appreciate the yeah. work that you and your colleagues have done uh, in kind of setting out uh, an agenda for preparing yeah. for the next pandemic. You know, Bob, thank you. And I just want to say, if you're trying to understand what we must do right now, go back to a few decades ago for the few of us that are old enough to remember the old oil frame commercial that was on TV. <laughs> and the closing line was, you can pay me now or you'll pay me later. And I can tell you right now, this is one where investment will be a cost savings over the long run in many, many ways, not just in dollars and cents, but also in lives. Well, thanks to your work and the work of your colleagues, we'll know just where that, those investments should be made. <laughs> so, all right. Thank you very much for uh, joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Bob and I will be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And for this segment, I'm joined by Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson and the Policy Director Tori Gorman. And we're going to talk about... Uh, the latest economic news from Washington, and uh, and maybe if we have time, something about the latest developments in the student loan forgiveness program. Um, okay, so there was a new inflation report uh, last week, and uh, it showed inflation going down a bit. Uh, well, I shouldn't say, going, I mean, it's still pretty high. It's, I think it was 7.7%, <laughs> but it was down from the 8.8%. Uh, 8.2% from the month before. And of course, those are year over year numbers. So it does get a little bit confusing. But the bottom line was that people were saying, hey, you know, uh, inflation looks like maybe, maybe this time for real, maybe it's really peaked. And the markets uh, thought that was great news. So, um, Steve, let me ask you, uh, has inflation peaked? <laughs> well, well, if if you're looking at the CPI numbers, which you just referred to, uh, certainly the current number is lower than the number before, and that would be one indication uh, that it has turned the corner. That the uh, I think they they like to call it uh, disinflation, meaning that the rate of inflation is slowing from the previous rate of inflation. <laughs> so we still have really high inflation. It's you know in the neighborhood of 8%, but it used to be above 8% and now it's below 8%. So yeah, certainly by, by that indicator, it looks like maybe we've turned the corner, um, but I, I think it's still too early to tell. And we're certainly getting, we're certainly getting indications from the Fed that they're not quite ready to call it a day on raising the, uh, the Fed funds rate. You know, markets are speculating, well, are we going to do another three quarter of a percent increase or maybe they'll back down and it'll only be a half a percent increase. But, um, you know, the, the, the Fed isn't, you know, the, the Fed is indicating that they don't think we're out of the woods yet. That's for sure. Well, let me just put a, another couple of numbers out there. Um, you know, we're th those numbers that I talked about before year over year. 
It's also important and, and maybe even more important to look at the month to month numbers. So uh, inflation was lower uh, than the month before this time. So we did have a, I think, a, a slight uh, dip in inflation month to month in this last report. And there's another measure called the uh, Personal Consumption Expenditure uh, Index that the Fed uses to track inflation. And that one was even, didn't show much of a, uh, a drop. And then there's core inflation, <laughs> which is inflation, CPI minus uh, volatile things like food and energy. And that dropped a bit um, year over year. So it's kind of a mixed bag, but certainly the market seemed to be off and running thinking, uh, celebrating. And you mentioned the Fed. Um, you know, they got another meeting coming up in December, and it's going to be really interesting to see how they react to all this data. There are several different ways of measuring inflation. The, the Fed's sort of preferred measure is what you, what you noted as the personal consumption expenditure index. And that's a slightly broader market basket. And there's, what, what PCI does is essentially it looks at prices and then it looks at a bundle of goods and it weights the prices by the shares of goods and it comes up with the index or the total increase. And the CPI is consumer prices, as the name suggests. Uh, personal consumption expenditures is a slightly broader basket. For example, it includes uh, health, uh, health insurance expenditures. CPI includes only if you go to the doctor and you pay out of pocket, it's in the CPI. But when you send the bill to the insurance company, that's in the PCE. So you, you have some differences in the market baskets of what goods are included. And you get different measures of inflation depending on what's in your market basket. And so that's what you're seeing now is the CPI number and the, and the PCE numbers are a little different. I mean, the Fed's target is a 2% PCE. And historically, the CPI has been about three-tenths of a percent higher. So if you have a 2% uh, personal consumption expenditure, that gives you about a 2.3% CPI. So there's a slight difference there historically. Um, but still, there's, there's still whatever, there's still a long way from their target. Well, right. Uh, yeah. If your target is 2% and you're close to 8%, you got a long way to go. That's for sure. So uh, let me just throw in one quick observation, though. If we, if we step back even another you know, 65,000 feet and look at the forest, what I think is important to, to, to point out is that by any measure of inflation, Inflation is either flat or down, and this is different than you know earlier in this year where we maybe we had some numbers that were showing inflation was flat, some numbers that were showing, hey, this piece of inflation is really, really high. It was really hard to see where the economy is going. Right now, you know, most standard measures of inflation are either showing prices falling or prices flat. And so those numbers are all sort of tending to agree with each other in, in the direction of, of where, where inflation is going. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'll quibble just a tiny bit to say that the rate of increase is flat. In other words, if it goes up 6% last month and 6% this month, prices still went up 6%. It's just that the 6% is exactly. higher than the previous 6%. Right. So that goes back to my argument about disinflation is that exactly. it doesn't mean prices are falling. It means the rate of increase is slowing. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's an important distinction. That is true. Because consumers are still feeling the pain at the pump and the grocery mm -hmm. store. Prices are still going up. Just not yeah, I don't think anybody's saying inflation is over. You're absolutely yeah. right. But right. I think the pace of inflation 
is the, the indicators show that the pace of inflation, they're all sort of moving in the same direction. Yep. Which uh, raises a, the, the tricky question for the Fed is whether to ease up on their interest rate hikes, they'd still be raising them. <laughs> I mean, Chairman Powell kind of sent mixed messages coming out of our last meeting, which was that, you know, we might... Uh, we might look at easing. However, we're going to probably end up keeping rates high for a prolonged or a longer period of time than than we thought, which really confused the hell out of. <laughs> yeah, well, they didn't know, markets didn't know how to interpret that. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's the challenge for the Fed is that you know raising interest rates is a very blunt instrument. Uh, it's hard to you know know exactly how high you have to raise them and how long you have to keep them at a higher rate. In order to contain inflation, and, and it's, you know, it's a very different, uh, difficult balancing act. And as as you know, Powell indicated, do we slow the rate at which we, you know, because the last three times they've they've increased the rate by three quarters of a percent, and they could do that again in December, or they could raise it only by half a percent. And you know, but that's that's what the Fed's trying to figure out is that. You know, do do they keep at their current pace of increase, or do they slow their 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 increase? And um, we we uh, have a couple of minutes left in uh, in this segment, and I wanted to switch over, Steve, to one of your favorite subjects, which is the fate of the student loan forgiveness program put forward by the Biden administration. There have been some developments um, both on the regulatory front uh, that you wrote about last week, and also in the uh, courts. Yeah, so the the administration released a new, or so the ministry, the Department of Education released a regulation last week, um, in which they came up with some new ways to allow students to avoid repaying their loans. And arguably, some of these are are, are fairly legitimate, and they're they're an expansion of existing powers. Uh, there's there's school closures if you if you go to a school and the school closes, uh, you can write off your debt if you become disabled. You can write off your debt if you have a public service uh, job. If you teachers, firefighters, you know, law enforcement, uh, you do a, a, a public service career for ten years, you can write off uh, your debt. And so they've expanded some of the provisions of these programs and made them more generous. And their estimate was that these would cost about seventy-two billion dollars over the next ten years in additional loan forgiveness. Uh, so it, it was a fairly substantial package, and I, I'm not aware. You know, some of the provisions are, in my mind, a little suspect, but I'm not aware that anybody's challenged these particular regulations. Uh, but of course, what has been challenged, and what has been the most recent development earlier this week, the uh, Eighth Circuit, the uh, the uh, Eighth U.S. Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, basically issued an injunction against the Biden administration's loan forgiveness. So the the portion of their proposal that was announced back uh, in, in the summer, where they were going to allow students to write off ten to twenty thousand dollars in student loan debt, uh, has been challenged in a number of courts, and some of the courts have uh, progressed up at, 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 to this point in the uh, in the in the eighth district, and essentially they've put the program on hold. So the administration has been told by the courts that they cannot proceed with writing off student loans. Uh, until either the Eighth Circuit issues a final ruling or unless the Supreme Court intervenes. You know, what's interesting, and, and we can end with this, but I mean, I, I, I look ahead to the CBO's uh, baseline in uh, January and how this might affect it. I mean, is, is, that $400 billion 
That's about $400 billion that CBO added at the end yep. of the year because that was the net present value of these loans right? Uh, according to their, their calculations. So that gets added to the, the, the deficit for this year, for this past year, uh, 2022. Now, if for some reason those that program is um, does not go forward, uh, suddenly $400 billion will come off. The deficit. Yeah, for, I mean, of course, uh, that that's 200. that that you know, this was for 2022. So that mainly affects simply the accounting and the historical documents of how do we adjust? Do we do we do we make uh, revisions to previous year's numbers? That will be. I, I'm not aware of that happening in the past, but actually, the more interesting question is if CBO assumes that this proposal goes forward, it gets put into the baseline in future years, and then if in fact Congress were to, you know, decide to stop the program, they could use the savings from uh, stopping a program that actually never happened because it gets built into the baseline. That's all the time we have for this week. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We've been talking about uh, the economy and some budget quirkiness in the student loan program. Uh, We'll be back next week with another episode of Facing the Future. 